Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Our scripture today comes from Genesis 25, verses 19 through 34. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in 2018, we, uh, we did a 12-week series where throughout that whole 12 weeks, we did it in three different parts. We just looked at 13 verses. We were in Romans chapter 12. It's a great passage, if you weren't here in 2018, a great passage of scripture just to meditate on for what Christian living is like. Well, this year we're doing the same things. We're taking 12 weeks, but instead of going over 13 verses, we're actually going over 1,533 verses um, or the whole book of Genesis. And I think this is good uh, that we've done this because there's, there's different ways to study the Bible. Sometimes you need to read the Bible and think about the Bible and meditate on the Bible very slowly as we did last year. Think about individual phrases and individual words. Sometimes you need to read the Bible and think about the Bible in in broad strokes, in big strokes, to kind of understand what God is doing throughout the Bible. And so through this series, we've looked at Genesis in three acts. If you were here kind of the beginning of the year, we looked at Act one, where really we talked about creation to fall, how God brought the world into being and how man escaped that plan, how man went away from God's initial design. In the second act, act two, we looked at really the narrative of Abraham, the story of Abraham. And throughout this whole series, even though most of the text in Genesis is narrative, it's a story in nature, we've been looking at a lot of doctrine. Uh, These stories actually teach us doctrine. And doctrine, if you don't know what that word means, it's basically just truths about God. These, These stories tell us about the character and the nature of who God is. We've looked at the doctrine of creation, obviously. We've looked at the doctrine of judgment, the doctrine, this idea of covenant, the idea of sacrifice. And so today we begin the third part, Act 3, 
of this journey through the book of Genesis. And again, similar to Act 2, it's going to be centered on, anchored on, the life of, the story of one man who's incredibly important in understanding kind of the biblical narrative. And of course, I'm talking about Jacob. Um, And we're going to begin here, as we did today, with Jacob's birth. And over the next four weeks, we'll kind of walk through different accounts of his life and end with his death. And in the birth of Jacob, we see a doctrine uh, that has already been introduced in Scripture, uh, but that is very clearly laid out in this passage and that will be laid out throughout the rest of the Bible, and that is the doctrine of election. So I want to look at at least uh, two ideas and maybe a third with you uh, as we consider Genesis 25 today. First of all, the purposes of God, and then secondly, the decisions of man. So let's look at the purposes of God. Well, the first thing that you notice in this text, first thing that pops out at you is the barrenness of Rebecca. Um, and again, the reason that you notice it, if you've, especially if you've been kind of reading through the whole book of Genesis, the reason that you notice it is that the previous matriarch, the Sarah, the wife of Abraham, the, the previous main female leading figure was also barren. So here you have two patriarchs, uh, these two great leaders of Israel, these two people that God has used in a mighty way, and both of their wives are barren. But there's obviously an encouraging part of this text, a promising part of this text. Isaac prays to the Lord, and the Lord hears his prayer, and the Lord answers his prayer. And of course, she doesn't just have one child in response to the prayer. She actually has twins, which brings you to the second thing that's very intriguing in this text that pops out at you, verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other but the older shall serve the younger. Now, in the ancient Near East, there were kind of two cultural ideas that that really ruled the understanding of a family. Um, The first was that a woman's value at this time was in her children, in having children. Women at this time brought great value to their culture, great value to their community, by having children, and particularly by having some male children, by having a lot of children. Okay, before we look down our noses at this culture for being so primitive, uh, keep in mind, it was a different time than we're in right now. It was, a, it was a very difficult time. It was a time of war and hardship. It was a time where most of the labor was hard manual labor. This was a farming kind of time. This was a herding community. And so it made sense that you would want a lot of children, especially if they're going to war, particularly you'd want to have sons. Oftentimes, again, sons would be lost in battle, and you, you wanted to have more than one son. And so again, just as women today would value a good education or getting a good job, in the ancient Near East, what was valued is their, their ability to have children. Another cultural value at this time that every family would have recognized is what's called primogeniture. And it it meant that the older child, particularly the oldest male son, would receive a greater privilege of the inheritance. And this was seen as a great favor, a great responsibility. This was called the birthright. Uh, It was was an honor. Um, It was something that people desired. But again, also it was a responsibility. It it, it felt as if something was being given to you that you had sacred trust of. And again, keep in mind, in this time, Assets were not so fluid, right? It was, it was hard to split up an inheritance among children. 
Uh, and the oldest son was the one that would get the farm, that would get the assets. Um, in fact, this is not so distant. A, a few years ago, uh, Paige, her grandfather, is actually a farmer. A few years ago, he, he died. And when he died, he gave all of his children some bit of an inheritance. But the oldest son in that family got the farm, which was the greatest asset. It makes sense, right? It, he was a farmer. He was the one that was going to carry on the family land. He was, going, he was the one that was going to keep this thing that was so identified with his family intact. And again, so as modern American people, before we look down on our noses at these ancient people, I just want to say to you, don't be so narrow-minded. <laughs> Understand these were different times. This was a different culture. In the ancient Near East, family, lineage, generational blessing, this was everything. It was how you lived on. It was how you found meaning in your life. And, and the firstborn, when your father died, you would become the patriarch. You would be the one that carried on the responsibility, the honor, the name, the assets of the family. And again, this, this wasn't seen as just a privilege. It was a privilege, but it was also a great responsibility. It was on you to hold the family's name in sacred trust. And at this time, no one thought that birth order was accidental. Everyone would have seen this as God's favor, as God's choice, as God's blessing. So again, the assumption was that the blessing of God at this time, the people that God was blessing at this time were women that were able to have children and a lot of children and the oldest son. But what do we see in this story? It's fascinating. You see the exact opposite. The, the one who is blessed by God, the one who is chosen by God, the one who is favored by God is a barren woman and the youngest son. These are the ones that God uses. These are the ones that God chooses. And again, not because they were so worthy, not because they were so obedient. Let's go on to verse 24. It says, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out, red, all his body like a hairy cloak. Imagine a baby like that. <laughs> so they called his name Esau. So again, not only from the beginning is Esau the favorite. He's the oldest. His is the birthright. He's, he's got so much going for him. He's a big, hairy baby. I mean, he is a man's man from birth. I mean, let's be honest. What father doesn't want a big, hairy baby? And in this time, you know, a ruddy or a red complexion, this was actually seen as handsome. The word Esau comes from the Hebrew seer which actually, it, it's, it was a reference to kind of like the grass on the mountains, you know, the, the hairy or shaggy grass on the mountains. So Esau the hairy one, or Esau the man of the mountains. I, I don't know how like the ancient Near East and Scotland fit together properly, but I always think of Hamish from Braveheart when I think of Esau, you know? And in a time where people were at war, in a time where you needed some manly men around, you want Hamish on your side. So obviously, Isaac loves this boy that God had given him. But verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now, the Hebrew word actually for Jacob, Jacob, it actually means to supplant or to trip up by the heels, right? So there's almost a warning in the name. Watch out for Jacob, <laughs> He might trip you up. 
Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, again, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So again, in this story, Esau has everything going for him. He was the firstborn. He had the birthright. He was the favorite. And he was a man's man. He was a hunter. His dad loved him. He was an athlete. He was a man of the field. His father loved everything that he killed. Meanwhile, Jacob, he was a tent dweller. He was quiet. Nobody really noticed Jacob. Everybody kind of forgot about him. He kept to himself. He cooked the meals, which in the ancient Near East was certainly not the work of a man. Everything in this story is pointing to Esau as the favored one, Esau as the strong one. But before they were born, before they did anything, God had his purposes for them. Jacob was the chosen one. The older would serve the younger. Which brings us to the second point here, and that is the decisions of man. Look at verse 29. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. The, the word for red stew here, this kind of phrase gets a little lost in translation. If you're reading the KJV, red pottage, the word gets a little lost. Um, but the word is uh, in Hebrew is ha-adam, ha-adam. So you can just imagine this sweaty man, he's come in from the field, he's exhausted, he sees the stew and just says ha-adam, ha-adam. And, and, and literally it's, it's kind of translated, you could translate it as the red, the red, you know. Just give me the red, the red. That's what I want. So you can imagine this big hairy man covered in dirt coming in. The red, the red, give it to me. It looks so good. I want it. But sneaky Jacob, remember Jacob's name means he will supplant you. He'll trip you up by the heel. Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. So again, this birthright, it was understood as a divine privilege, as a divine responsibility. The older son had the honor, he had the rights, he had the possessions. He was going to carry on the family name. This was sacred. It was a possession that God had given him. In verse 32, Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me now? Jacob said, then swear it to me. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, our pastors, uh, uh, are, are, we have a little sermon writing meeting every week and we did it with the pastor school guys this week. And we're talking about the passage and talking about the characters in the passage and, you know, our pastor school guys were like, you know, Esau is not a bad guy. If you, if you read kind of the whole account of Esau, he, you know, he's, he usually is doing good things. Actually, two chapters later, Jacob, in a similar way, kind of tricks Esau out of, or tricks Isaac, really, out of giving Esau the blessing. Not only does Jacob get the birthright, he also gets Isaac's blessing. 
But even later on, Esau forgives him. Esau is not presented in scripture as this kind of horrible, horrible guy. But yet his whole life is marked by this. His whole life is marked by this bad decision where he traded in a moment of passion, in a moment of exhaustion, where he traded his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. He gave up God's honor, God's reward, God's responsibility for stew. The writer of Hebrews says this of Esau. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. The NIV says godless. See to it that none of you are godless like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau, the strong, Esau, the favor, Esau, the blessed, his life is totally changed by this moment when he became a slave to his appetites. This decision forever marked Esau. It forever affected Esau. The line, the blessing, the promised offspring would not go through the older brother. It would go through Jacob. But yet, it was a decision of God before he was even born. The older shall serve the younger. The purposes of God, that God is sovereignly working out and the decisions of man. And throughout the Bible, you see both of these so clearly. Throughout the Bible, we see God's sovereign rule over all creation. You know, Abraham Kuyper, who was a theologian, he was a churchman, but he actually also became the prime minister of the Netherlands. Very influential figure in the late 19th, early 20th century. He, he says this, this great quote, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, the sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Jesus Christ, the sovereign over all, and God has his purposes in all. It's interesting, this story, this famous story shows up again, very famously in Romans chapter 9. These hard yet sobering verses, look at Verse 10 through 18 with me. It says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau... I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whom he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. God has his purposes. 
It's very clear in Genesis 25. But equally as clear, in the same passage, Esau's decisions really mattered. Esau is responsible for selling his birthright. The author of Hebrews, again, as I said earlier, says that he is godless. Esau isn't excused because before he was born, God said that this would be his pathway. God's purposes stand, yet man's decisions matter. And how these two stand next to each other is one of the great mysteries of Christianity that that is never perfectly resolved. In fact, John Calvin, who thought a lot about this, says it this way. He says, if anyone with carefree assurance, and, and what that means is if you go into this thinking that you can undo the tension between the responsibility of God and the between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. If you think you can undo that tension, if you have carefree assurance, if anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. In other words, John Calvin, who thought a lot more about these things than I have, said two things that are very clear in scripture. Man is responsible, your decisions matter, But God is sovereign. God is in control. God is not soft. God is not weak. He is working out all things according to his right and good pleasure. And there is a necessary tension between these two that is not perfectly resolved. And I just want to say, if you push too hard one way or if you push too hard the other, you will wind up in heresy. And heresy is when your doctrine, the things that you believe, don't line up with what God has clearly revealed. So in response to this tension that we've built, I want to give you a couple of things to think about. First is fear God. We talked about this a bit on our sermon talk back. How little people in our time think about ultimate things. We live in a very fast-paced, distracted world. We don't think about ultimate things. In fact, this week I was having a conversation with a man who's dying. He's dying of cancer. He, he hopefully has a few, maybe a year, maybe more, but likely the next couple of years, it's, it's, it's obvious what's going on here. He's not cured, it's just he's maintaining this. And he said to me, I wish I would have thought about ultimate things more when I was healthy. <laughs> I wish I would have thought about bigger things more when I had the energy to do something about it. You know, church buildings used to have cemeteries next to them. So every Sunday when you went to church, you you had to think about death. You had to think about ultimate things. You had to think about things that were eternal. You had to realize how fragile you are. It was easier to think about God as a judge then. It was easier to think about God as one who had authority then. It was easier to think about God as one who ruled then. We don't think about those things as much in 21st century America. We see God as a friend. We see God as one who has some helpful principles. God who will be there when we need him. And of course, all of that is true of God. But don't miss sight of this. God is the one who has authority. It is his world and not yours. He is the one who is in control and not you. God, as Matt said last week, is not a genie. 
He is a ruler. And God is working out his purposes, not ours. And, and our right posture before him is awe and fear and honor. I want you to hear this. Your opinion of God has no bearing on how much authority he has. Your opinion of who he is, your opinion of how much authority he has, doesn't change how much authority he actually has. If you don't like something that God does, that doesn't make him any less good. If you don't like something that God says, that doesn't make it any less true. If you don't believe in God, that doesn't make him any less real. You are not determinative over God. He is only determinative over you and over me. So yes, of course God is loving. Of course God is wise. Of course God is good. It is right for us to think about these things. But God is also sovereign. He is a ruler. He's not a genie. There's this famous scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who's the God character in that book, the Jesus figure. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You ever see a lion? <laughs> you ever get close to a lion? Even at the zoo, when they're on like the other side of the safety glass, you give the glass a little knock to make sure it's not gonna break. And the reason that you respect a lion is because you know that that lion has physical authority over you. No matter who you are, that lion has physical authority over you. And here's the truth about God. God has authority over you in every way. Physical, mental, emotional, in all ways. God has authority over you. He has authority over all things. So fear God. But second thing to think about, when we think about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, fear God. But secondly, hate your sin. I want you to hear this, church. Your decisions matter. Your decisions matter. And every day we make the same choice that Esau made, soup or birthright. Will you reach for the bowl or will you reach for God? Will you follow your appetite or will you follow God's will? What it came down to for Esau was a very simple question. Am I going to follow God's greater plan for my life, even though it's hard, even though right now I feel like it's going to kill me, or am I going to follow my appetites? It's easier. I want it. And a lot of times, following my appetite feels like it's going to save my life. Remember this, sin always separates you from God. There's never a good result of sin. And you can either be ruled by sin or ruled by an appetite. And you can be ruled by an appetite for the rest of your life. And these appetites, I want you to hear this, they always say the same thing that Esau's hunger said to him. Your appetites always say to you, here's what they say to you. If you don't have me, you're gonna die. 
If you don't have me, you're going to die. What good is your birthright now? What good is God's greater plan for your life now? If you don't have me right now, you're going to die. It's the same thing that Eve believed in the garden. Remember Eve in the garden? She knew that if she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that she would die. She knew that to be true, yet she still ate of the fruit. Why did she do that? Well, you have to believe that she came to believe the opposite, that she didn't have that fruit, she would die. She came to believe that the greater risk was not eating the fruit, not following her appetite. I need this fruit. And all of us have appetites in our lives. These ruling appetites, they can become a god to us. They can become idols to us that say, you need me. You need me over and over again. Without me, you'll never be happy. Without me, you'll be worthless. You know, sometimes these are material things. It could be food. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. These very tangible material things. Money. Most of the time, for most of us, it's more immaterial. It's our success. It's that dream that you have, right? To be successful. And if you don't have that, you're nothing. It's that dream that you have to be married, to be happy. It, these are the things that oftentimes so grab our attention. They so give us a desire that, that draws us away from our birthright, from God's greater plan. See, very quickly, these appetites can overtake you. And the point is, when you get to this point, you'll do anything to appease them, even if it means selling your birthright. You know, I, I'm quite sure if you went up to Esau and said, hey, Esau, should I trade my birthright for a single bowl of stew? If you went up to Esau and asked him that question, you know what you would say? He would say, of course not. Your birthright is your sacred honor. Your birthright is God's blessing to you. How dare you even think about trading your birthright for a bowl of stew? That's how Esau would have advised you. A lot of times when I'm counseling people, I experience the same thing. I say, how would you advise someone else? And here's the deal. People often give the advice that they themselves aren't willing to take. And that's how you know that you are a slave to an appetite. And that's how you know that you are trading your immediate appetite for your God-given birthright. So hate your sin. Paul wrote of such people, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. When I was in seminary, um, I lived in a house with nine guys. Some of y'all know this. We called the house the duck and the goose because we had a pet duck and a pet goose. We also had a pet dog, which, you know, that wasn't always the easiest thing to have. Dogs and duck and geese aren't the most compatible pets. But anyway, it was a good dog. It was a, kind of a black lab Rottweiler mix. Named, we, her name was Sammy. And I loved Sammy. She was an awesome dog. She was such an athlete. She could literally jump. I had a truck, and she could jump from the ground into the bed of the truck with the tailgate up. She was, she was a stud. Um, but there's, there's one thing that I could do uh, that I had that I could use to control Sammy with. 
and it was this. This is a, called a greenie. Anybody have a dog here? If you have a dog, you know the power of the greenie. And if anywhere, anything I wanted to do with Sammy, all I had to do, if I wanted her to follow me around, if I wanted her to do this, if I wanted her to do that, all I had to do was get the greenie out, and she would lock in on the greenie. And just wherever I went, I could hold it up, she would lock in. She, had, she wanted to do whatever she could. We actually had one of these, like, you know those like electric fence uh, with the, the collar? I once saw her fight through a shock collar electric fence just to get a greening. She loved these things. Now, Sammy was a dog, and I don't know what went through her head when she saw this thing, but I can imagine it being something like this. The green, the green. I've got to have the green. Same thing that went through Esau's head. Here's the deal, though. You're not a dog. You're not a pet. If you're in Christ, God has called you to be a son, a daughter of the living God, to follow in his way. He has given you a birthright. He has given you a divine privilege. And so fear him and hate your sin. And all this brings me to the final point I want to make today, which I said uh, I was only going to give you two, but this is a third. It's the Father's blessing. You know, all these stories about birthright and God's blessing, they remind me about a conversation we had a few weeks ago at the Spotted Cow where we talked about fatherhood and the importance of fatherhood. Here's the deal. Everyone wants their father's blessing. Everyone wants the honor of their family. Everyone wants this. And ultimately, all of that points to the fact that we all deep down want God's blessing, our Heavenly Father's blessing. We, we know deep down there's enough image of God in us still, even despite our sin, to know that we're supposed to reflect His glory, that we're supposed to bring Him honor, that we're supposed to make Him proud. But here's the problem. All of us have sold our birthright. We've all traded God's blessing for lesser things. We've all given away the true blessing of God for more immediate satisfaction. But just like in this, uh, in this story, where the one who shouldn't receive a blessing does, and the one who should receive the blessing is cursed, just like in this story, where the, where, where the one who shouldn't receive the blessing does, and where the one who should receive the blessing is cursed, so it is with the gospel. This is the good news that I have for you today, is that even though we've all forsaken our birthright, we have an older brother who was not foolish like Esau, who didn't trade his birthright for a bowl of stew. No, actually, he was always obedient. He was perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous, always in line with God. He was the older brother that always did what pleased his father, yet he willingly took on the sin of the younger brother. He willingly was cursed so that the younger brother could receive the blessing. The one who shouldn't receive the blessing gets the blessing, and the one who should receive the blessing is cursed. This is the gospel story. Jesus willingly passed, was willingly passed over so that people like you and me could be brought in. How do you receive the Father's blessing? 
How do you stand complete in the sight of God? How will you stand as Brad prayed on the last day before an almighty God? Well, there's one of two things you can do. You can either perfectly obey the Father's will all the time in word, thought, and deed, or you can look to one who has. You can trust in one who has. And I just want you to hear this. When you realize that you have such an older brother, that Jesus really came after you to call you in, to call you back to the Father's joy and blessing and life and privilege, that changes you. That moves you. It sets you free from your appetites. You know, it's hard to ever be set free from your appetites. You know what sets people free from their appetites? It's when they realize, A, the cost of their appetite, and B, the blessing of obedience. You know, when you really realize the cost of your appetites, when your appetites start to kill you, like this man that I was talking about, when you really see the immediacy of not living for greater things, it's, it, it opens your eyes, it sets you free. When you really see the great blessing of obedience, it sets you free, and this is what the gospel does right in front of you, see the cost of your appetites, see the cross of Jesus. This, this painful cross where Jesus, the Son of God, had to be forsaken by his Father, crushed by his Father. This is the cost of your appetite. But yet see the reward of obedience. It's what we talked about last week. It's glory, it's eternal life. It's life with God where all has been made right. And this can be yours because the older brother took on the cost so that we could receive the reward. And when you see this and when you believe this, you're changed, you're moved. Look, here's what I know. I want you to hear this. In God's promise, in God's rather providence, you are here now. In God's sovereignty, you are here today, sitting where you're sitting, listening to what I just said to you. Will you believe? Will you look to Jesus? Will the decision matter today of you following Christ, obeying him, seeing that he is your hope? Or will you keep reaching for the bowl? Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would turn hearts full of idolatry, hearts full of worldly appetites toward the living Christ, the one who has taken on our sin willingly, the one who has achieved for us a reward, who has achieved for us the Father's blessing. May Father, today we take hold of this birthright, not because we have any right to it, but because it is the gift that the Lord you and Christ desire to give us. And so Father, I pray that all of these things that we just thought about, that I read in this text, that Shannon read in this text, that we talked about from this text, would be real and would be full, and that you would give us faith to believe. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.